0: It's fantastic to be able to assemble this panel. I have to tell you, um, some of our panellists today have come from near and far to be with us today, as you can well imagine. Um, And I'm very, very grateful that they have. You'd be aware, um, I'm on a a Defence Force Gender Advisory Board, so I'm very aware that there have been many changes in the Defence Forces around uh, women and a lot going on there. And I think it's great to be able to to hear the stories of women in defence from the women themselves. So this is an opportunity for us to do that today, hear about their their careers, which are extraordinary for those of us who are desk-bound, they're quite, almost quite unimaginable, what they they do of a day. Um, But also to hear what's happening in defence more generally. So let me start um, way down the end there, Fleur. Um, Wing Commander Fleur James was a member of the first contingent of air traffic controllers to deploy to Mogadishu, Somalia, in October 1993. In recent years, she's had two six month deployments to Dili in East Timor and Kabul in Afghanistan. And she's assisted uh, Sex Discrimination Commissioner Elizabeth Broderick with her review into the treatment of women in the Defence Force. So welcome, Fleur. Uh, Next to her is Commander Kath Hayes who served in the Navy for 23 years. Uh, She's a Maritime Warfare Officer and Air Warfare Specialist um, who's served in a variety of command, leadership and staff roles ashore and at sea. She's currently the commanding officer of Anzac-class frigate HMAS Toowoomba. In 2014, Commander Hayes was the first woman to command an Australian warship on operations in the Middle East. Welcome, Kath. Alex, who is not in uniform, you will probably (laughs) note, is actually the Director of Cultural Reform in the Australian Defence Force based at the Australian Human Rights Commission. Uh, Previously, she was the Director of the review, the Broderick Review, into the treatment of women in the ADF. Uh, She was recently named in the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence for her work in the area. Thanks for coming, Alex. And um, next to me, Major Charmaine Benfield joined the Australian Regular Army in 1998. She attended ADFA and Royal Military College and graduated into the Royal Australian Corps of Transport. She's been deployed overseas in Iraq, Indonesia, and in the Middle East, for which she was awarded a commendation for distinguished service. Uh, her academic studies included a BA, an MBA, and a Masters of Defence and Strategic Studies. Welcome, Charmaine. Thank you. I guess given that um, today is about getting a bit of an insight on what it feels like to be a woman in defence, I wondered if I could ask um, each of our uniform panellists at this stage to, to give us a little bit of a snapshot of your career and your jobs at the moment. So maybe, um, Fleur, can I start with you? Sure. Tell us about what you're doing.
1: Um, well, uh, I joined uh, defence in 1988, um, which somewhat dates me, I guess, but um, I you had... You were 10 at the time, right? Yeah, 10, yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I decided when I was 14, I simply declared I'm going to join the Air Force and my parents were quite supportive of that um, and uh, I joined as an air traffic controller um, and had a fantastic career as a controller for 13 years, which included that deployment to Mogadishu that was mentioned. Uh, I, was, I was 23, brand new uh, flight lieutenant uh, at the time and, and a team leader over in, in Somalia. Uh, so, yeah, quite an exciting experience. Um few control, uh, air traffic control postings around the country. Um, a lot of people used to ask, you know, air traffic control, that's a really stressful job, isn't it? And I would always say, yeah, it's fantastic, you know, as a younger person. But then when I found myself going, yeah, it is, can I have a glass of wine, was when I decided <laughs> that uh, perhaps something, I should do something else as well in defence, and uh, defence had... Uh, had sponsored me to do a HR degree. So I transferred over to our personal capability officer um, stream. And so I'm I'm essentially a HR manager in defence now and had a number of roles in the training environment and the recruiting environment. And currently I'm working with SEMPRO, which is our sexual misconduct prevention and response office.
0: Could I just um, ask you, uh, when you said you wanted to join the Air Force, Mm -hmm. from quite a young age, did you want
1: to be an air traffic controller or was it the air force that attracted you in it other was words
0: was it the job or the air force
1: first air it force was air force first, first yeah. and uh, then going going to recruiting and to all the careers exposed at our school um i found out about a number of jobs in defence and had conversations with my teachers as well and and they actually said look i we really think you should um, follow the officer career options. Um, they saw leadership potential in me. Um, that was really nice of my high school teachers. Yeah. And uh, so I looked at the officer career options and air traffic appea- appealed and I loved it. I loved yeah. it for a good many years. Yeah. Did anyone try and talk you out of, of joining? Or was No. That... No, absolutely not. Yeah. No. My parents were both very supportive. Mm. Um, my mother's brother had been in the Royal Air Force. Yeah. I'd not met him. I met him actually on, uh, when I was on leave from Somalia, you get a two-week break on a deployment, so I popped up to the UK and, and met my Uncle Charlie. <laughs> um, but he'd been in the Royal Air Force, but I'd never met him. Yeah. Um, and, but so they were, they were supportive of, yeah. of a defence yeah. career. Okay. Fantastic. Now, um, Kath, you were uh,
0: telling me you were interviewed by Radio National this week, and um, you talked about the view from your porthole, what, us civilians call the porthole, um, which might be a nice place to start with, with what you're doing at the moment. Can you tell us what the view's like from
2: there? Okay. So uh, about 48 hours ago, um, we've, we were talking about before that mm. I'm the commanding officer of HMAS Toowoomba. There's a, a crew of about 157. I can have up to 190 uh, young men and women under my command at any one time on board. Um, at the time of the interview, I was sitting in my cabin. My cabin, if you can imagine, it's sort of the, the captain's stateroom, And uh, there's a porthole. So what we call a scuttle, and out of that porthole there's a harpoon missile and I sleep 10 metres away from that harpoon missile. Um, And just a bit further down, out through that window is a five-inch gun and then I can see the bow of the ship and I can see the waves as we we proceed forward. So Mm. that was the view that that I had at that time. And uh, 48 hours ago um, I was at sea with two P3 Orion's, one from the US, one from Australia, two submarines, one for the US, one from Australia, Uh, two frigates, one from the Kiwi Navy, um, our frigate, and also a tanker. I also had my helicopter, which uh, I have on the back of the ship. So all of these things are out there. Um, For most men, they would think that that was, you know, the biggest toys ever. (laughs) But uh, I tell you what, I've got lots of women in my crew and they think it's pretty cool as well. Uh, We play. We we say we play with these toys, well, we we exercise with these toys. What they do is, can be inherently dangerous. What they plan for and practise for is inherently dangerous. But uh, they are very skilled young men and women and they are very professional at what they do. And I I think I was telling you earlier, Catherine, that when I joined the Navy, I was all excited about how this was going to be an adventure, how I was going to go and see the world how it was going to be very, very exciting, and uh, I was going to learn a lot. I joined a ship, and yes, it was exciting, but as I grew up, I realised that the most exciting thing of what I do is watching and leading young men and women to do very amazing things, and they inspire me every day. So I joined my job as a commanding officer to inspire them, and every day I look at them and they inspire me. They are very, very strong young men and women and they do a great job and, mm. and I, I love what I do. Yeah. If you may
0: be able to tell. Yeah. Yep.
2: It's very, it's very
0: motivating. So, um, but tell me about uh, when you did join, was that something you'd long thought about or how did that process work for you? Um,
2: I actually went to an army be a digger for a weekend. It was not in the early 90s, so probably 1990. And uh, I came home and I said, oh, this is great. I'm going to join the army. My mum looked at me and said, that Navy uniform looks better. <laughs> I, told my, uh, I told my best friend I was going to join the Navy, and she said, but don't you want to have kids and have a family?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And it was, an interesting, uh, it was an interesting contrast, and I went, kids and a family? I'm 16. I want to go out and, you know, explore the world and do exciting things. That wasn't even on the agenda. So uh, there's a bit of a contrast there, but my parents were very supportive, I guess, just like Fleurs were. Um, they knew that I wanted to go out and do something. Yeah. I went and got a degree at Adford and, uh, and right. then joined and learnt to drive a ship. Yeah. And now I've been the captain of two ships now, um, yeah. one of the Armidales and now one of our frigates. Fantastic. And I've had a great career so far and I yeah. hope to continue it.
1: Yeah.
2: Thank you.
0: Um, well, um, I might come back in a minute to Alex. I'm not skipping mm. over you. I just thought um, we, will, we will talk a little bit about the uniform careers first. Um, so, Charmaine, tell us about um, you've been. You've been to a number of countries. So you've actually had a very interesting career path. Where did that all start? Was that something from a high school sort of motivation or? Kind of, but not not
4: necessarily in the way you might think. Um, When I was in year 11, I was looking at this university brochures in my school library as everyone else was. One of the boys in my class picked up a very glossy one for ADFA. I must have shown some interest uh, because he was explaining how he was going to get an ADFA scholarship and join the Army. Uh, He then stated to me that I wouldn't be able to get an Army scholarship because I'm a girl. Completely the wrong thing to say to me at uh, my 16-year-old <laughs> self. So I applied, won an army scholarship to ADFA, zero intention of joining the army, knew nothing about it. Did he? No. no. None of us did. OK.
0: <laughs> we grew up in country, Just New saying. South Wales. We knew
4: nothing about it. Um, as it turns out, I'm the, I'm the eldest child from a, a farming family. My parents were looking for somewhere safe for me to go to university. Queensland was one option. They visited ADFA one day. It was shown around by a pair of uh, Air Force cadets at the time. My parents loved it. Uh, My dad got on the phone. I'll always remember he said, there's not a blade of grass out of place. So (laughs) as a result, that's where I ended up. So I ended (laughs) up joining ADFA essentially. Knew nothing about the Army. But uh, it's probably more important to say that the reason I stayed in Army is because... The values of Army, courage, initiative, respect and teamwork and the way that Army operates as part of a team and gives you that command opportunity is what drives me and that's why I've stayed. Um, you said I've, seen, I've been to a number of different countries. Um, there are a lot of roles that the Australian Army and indeed all three services undertake on the government's behalf they aren't necessarily pure combat roles. I've been to Indonesia to a place called Padang after they had an earthquake there Mm -hmm. in an engineering and health humanitarian style role. Um, There's plenty of disaster relief that also happens within our own country that the three services get involved with. Uh, My role in Iraq was in logistics inside a battle group. That battle group was helping to train the Iraqi army and also provide security across two different provinces. And my role recently in the Middle East was as the logistics officer of the force support unit. So my job was providing logistics support to all of Australia's deployed forces, all three services and supporting our embassies as well, conduct numerous different missions. So it has been quite a varied career. And Mm. even in postings in Australia, I find that I'm never doing the same job for very long. I change jobs every couple of years, which is at times quite frightening, but mostly, quite exciting, and I really relish the
0: challenges. Mm, Fantastic. Alex, um, during the course of the work you did, uh, the very in-depth work you did for the review and and the role you've got now, what what are you observing about um, the the women coming through now who who are coming into the services? And um, I know um, sometimes the issue is not so much getting them through the door, but it is retention further Mm. further down the track. Um, Are they realistic? Do they know um, what they're getting into, in a way?
3: Some, yeah, yeah, yeah so, mm-hmm. some are. I think um, the ADF doesn't do a great job of explaining the enormous careers that, and, and jobs and roles that mm-hmm. people can have. So I think, um, you know, some people turn up at recruitment and um, they're, you know, advised to go into some category and when in fact, there's another category that they were quite interested in that they didn't know. So look, but some do know what they're getting in for. I mean, I think everyone would know that if you're going to Royal Military College at Duntroon, it's going to be very rigorous, it's going to be very physical, um, it's going to be hard, there's going to be a lot of um, sleep deprivation. Um, but then you do hear some stories of some young people that come in, both men and women, who join the Navy, who didn't realise they had to go to sea. So there is still this <laughs> <laughs> so, so there, there definitely still is um, not a great deal of knowledge. I yeah. think, you know, um, I think Fleur or Kath said there's, there is a lot of, uh, I think it was Kath, you know, adventure. There's definitely a strong commitment to serve yeah. for, for your country. There's huge or um, they want to um, continue the legacy of a grandparent or a parent yeah. but nevertheless, I, I still think people don't quite grasp the breadth of what can be done. Yes, mm. so that possibly a bit more work to be done there. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Kath, with the, that you mentioned before the, the people on, uh, you know, that you lead now, and um, and that's a very dedicated group. How important is it to have somebody like you there, though, who's who's also showing that it can be done? Because you've got, how many women did you say you've got on board at the
2: moment? There's probably about 27, 27. at the moment. And that's of a crew of uh, just over 150. And yeah. it sort of changes regularly with trainees. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's still a small number. It's, a, it's probably yeah. better than it would have been a few but years ago, but. But there's always a, you know, there's, there's never a moment where you look around and it's all men. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah indeed. So
0: yeah, no, I just, I guess what I'm interested in, I'm, I'm sure all three of you can, can talk about this, but it's, it's so important to have women in those roles, isn't it, who are visible in those roles as well, um, to show
2: that it can be done. Yeah, I, I don't think it's something that I consciously think about mm. every day. I think mm-hmm. I was telling you I was at a meeting, um, I was a, at a meeting before we went out and exercise, and uh, there's probably about... 30 or 40 people in that meeting. It was a planning meeting, and um, one of one of the young officers elbowed me and said, "Hey, boss, you're the only you're the only female in this room." And uh, it's very uncommon for that to occur. And that was an international forum, um, and normally you would expect to see Australian females there. Hmm. And uh, and there was only the only reason there wasn't an extra female there is because she was actually off doing another representative task, and she would have we would have had more females there from Australia but the other nations didn't have any females in the room. Um, Is it important? It probably is for the younger females. For me growing up, I grew up in a very, um, in in an organisation where there weren't many females. But I was part of a team and it didn't matter. I was a member of that team. Um, Shipmates are like family. Um, You... You you live with one another 24-7. You wake up and you see people when they're in bad moods, when they're in good moods, you know, when their hair's messy, when, you know, when it's the middle of the night and they've just come on watch, um, when their dog's died, when, you know, when they're missing home, when they're having a great time, when it's their birthday. You You share all of these things and you actually are a family. And what I've always found is that my male shipmates have considered me after a while, they they, they would protect you. Um, Generally, they would stick up for one another because they are a little family, a unit that that travels together, that works together, that, you know, does everything together. Mm. um, Within, you know, within 116 metres of one another. Mm. Um, So you are a family Mm. and uh, families have fights and tiffs too though. Oh, yes, <laughs> I think we're probably all aware of that. Um, air Force, what, what
0: what's happening there? How many women do we have at the moment in uh, the Air Force?
1: Uh, we're sitting around uh, 15%, I think, mm. in Air Force. So it, it is improving, but slowly but surely. Yeah. We do have some categories that are highly feminized and certainly the HR side of things that is uh, highly feminized. Air traffic control too was one. It, air traffic being such a specialist role, you can either do it or you can't. and. Uh, mm. um, it, yeah so it, it it's not a gender based role in any way it's it's that ability for spatial uh awareness uh, the 3d air pictures you know multitasking um and i remember my course uh was 5 females and 3 males and a female ducked it yeah. and um uh, yeah, and my sections, my air traffic sections were, uh, yeah, some were low in females, but one I was in was more females than males, mm. so, yeah.
0: Still certain areas, though, of Air Force that have very few women. Or, of course. Or none. Or um, none. We yeah. had
1: two categories that uh, are, ha- have now opened to females. Yeah. Um, and they were the, the ground defence officers and our airfield defence guards, which is essentially our little army part of Air Force. Yes. Um, and, uh, but that's opened up to females now. When did that happen? Is that...? When when it opened to everyone, uh, when all of the roles opened. Yes. uh, They they were the last two roles in Air Force that hadn't opened yet. Yeah. Uh, The only other one, when I was working recruiting only a few years ago and the only other role we had that wasn't open to females at the time was aircraft surface finishers, so spray painters. But that was actually to do with the types of chemicals that we were using Mm. and the effects that it could have on the female reproductive system. Mm. But we've since changed that as well, so. Mm. Tell
0: me about recruiting, because uh-huh. um, it's, it's interesting.
1: Do you find
0: that you ever get from young women who are looking at the services just generally um, as an option, a career option, um, a concern about the fact that they will be possibly in quite a small minority? Because that can be, that can be really off-putting for um, some
1: people. I never actually had that mm. concern. Though I did have some of the concerns like can you, you know, can you have babies? Um, I remember a 15-year-old asking me that, can you have babies? And I, mm. I thought, one, you're 15, why are you thinking about that? But <laughs> but, but, two, of course, yes, of course, you can have mm. babies. Um, and uh, the other questions I had uh, were more along the lines of why can't we do these roles? Yeah. Um, but I never had uh, any real concerns about, yeah. uh, you know, being in a minority yeah. at all. Yeah.
0: Um I, I also wanted to, um, well, maybe Alex, it would be good to hear from you. What, um, what do you think are the sort of difficulties that, that women still have though in, in when they're looking at a military career? Because having, again, having done the review, you've been able to talk in depth to a lot of women. Um, mm. What are the, I guess, what are the barriers that some mm. of them do report back to you mm. that, have, that have been difficult? Which may not be about motherhood, but mm. may well mm. be as well.
3: Yes. Yeah, so just by way of background, um, in the work I've done with Liz Broderick, who's the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, we've probably spoken to now close to about 7,000 ADF members mm-hmm. and travelled um, extensively to uh, bases across Australia, um, up into Afghanistan and um, our base just out of Dubai. Uh, so we, um, So we've certainly heard a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and, and gathered a lot of information from the mouths of the service people themselves. Um, and what we do find is um, the women that have the hardest road are the women that are in the, male dom- the mostly male-dominated areas. Um, I mean, defence of itself is a very uh, male-dominated environment. But as Fleur said, uh, there are certain feminised um, categories or core or whatever. Um, Infantry, for instance, has just opened up to women um, and, but I don't, I don't believe there's any coming just yet. But nevertheless, in in teams, in categories where women might be one or two, it can be um, quite a difficult road for them. Um, The whole idea of motherhood can be quite tricky. Mm. Defence have some of the best policies you will ever see of any organisation, including around parental leave. But the very structures uh, that include, you know, three-year postings, getting up and moving every three years can be really, really difficult for families. Um, And also what our research showed that uh, it's a very rank, um, uh, hierarchical um, organisation and some of those key gateways to go up into more senior ranks are actually in childbearing years. Mm. So women often find that, Uh, when they go off and have babies, it's actually a critical gateway, as we call it. Uh, If they take a bit of time out of um, the services as well, they can reach what's called a terminal rank ceiling. So it means they can't go any further. Mm. So there are all these structural barriers um, that over the last three or four years now that I've been working with the ADF are slowly being dismantled. Um, uh, to make it easier for women to thrive in the military, Mm. just like men.
0: Mm. Mm. And um, I just wonder um, about uh, David Morrison's effect on on army in particular. So chief of army, and I don't know if any of you have seen the the YouTube um, that David Morrison did uh, following um, the Skype affair and so on, but he's been very forthright, hasn't he, about what he expects uh, in the Army and also about how important this issue is to him. Absolutely. He, I happen to work at Army headquarters this year, which is
4: where the Chief of Army also works uh, and have an opportunity to speak to him occasionally. Uh, His impact has been considerable Uh, for, for me personally. Uh, on the day before I was due to come home from the Middle East from my last deployment, I saw that YouTube video. It was directly after the Jedi Council uh, issue had come out. And and always as an individual, you look at your organisation and think, wow, what am I coming back into? What's going to happen when I get back to Australia? For me, it was quite personal. I knew some of the men on the Jedi, so-called Jedi Council and... I personally felt quite betrayed by the actions that they may or may not have taken uh, under that organisation. So, to listen to my chief say, if you can't deal with diversity and if you can't be respectful in this organisation in the army, then get out. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. And it gave me a lot more confidence as well. Uh, I find that a lot of army officers, male and female, are just as direct as General Morrison in what their expectations are. And his words and his views are quite strongly reflected across the organisation. So what he said wasn't unusual. Mm. And it wasn't different to to much that I've heard before. Uh, Of course, there are always some individuals in an organisation that don't carry that organisation line. Often they will depart that organisation, whether it be a military or civilian. Uh, But his leadership in this particular matter has been fantastic for both the men and women in the organisation. Uh, He's also instituted a great deal of flexibility in our workplace arrangements, uh, which is something that Alex just alluded to. And I can see my male and female peers taking advantage of that. One of my peers who sits next to me in the workplace, exceptionally tough, strong infantry man, will depart workplace to go and pick up his one-year-old, Harry, when Harry is sick, because that's where he fits in as a parent. Mm. And it's not his wife's responsibility, he takes it as his responsibility. And as far as myself and everyone else in the workplace is concerned, that's perfectly fine. Mm. We're very it does, take with a, that.
0: it does take a concerted uh, sort of effort though, doesn't it? And it Alex, does. Um, I, was, I was going to ask you because I know um, the penny dropping moment that David Morrison sometimes talks about is when he actually sat in a room um, and spoke to some uh, young women who'd yeah. not had a great time in, in the mm. army. Can you tell us a little bit about yeah. that? Um,
3: yes, yeah, so as I said, I, I've worked very closely with Liz Broderick and during our uh, visits to bases uh, where we would meet with um, have focus groups with members, we'd often get uh, women coming to us uh, secretly to want to talk to us privately and it was, and often we'd see them off base because they didn't want to be identified. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of these women had suffered uh, terribly uh, in the ADF, extreme exclusion, being the only woman in a certain team when the men would take bets on uh, how long uh, people could go without talking to her. This would be an exercise for months. Um, Women that had been sexually harassed, women that had been sexually assaulted by their instructor and women who couldn't, felt they couldn't complain because they'd be victimised or their career would be trashed. Now, I want to emphasise that this certainly, wasn't prevalent, you know, it was, these were pockets. Um, And as we, we sat in these rooms with these incredibly courageous women hearing these stories, uh, we thought, look, it's all very well for us to hear them and to write them in a report and um, for people to read them or not read them, but, the most important people that have the power in the organisation actually need to hear these stories. Mm-hmm. And Liz will often say, because change comes about when you engage not just the head but the heart. And uh, so we, we, we thought of this strategy that was fairly risky, I've, I've got to say, with the consent of these women, we would fly them to Sydney with their support people and meet with their chief. So it was General Morrison, it was the Chief of Air Force, um, Jeff Brown and it was Ray Griggs at the time, Chief of Navy. And the chiefs were, were very um, willing to do this. Uh, we said to them, please don't come in uniform. Please don't bring any of your aides, um, you, um, you just have to listen. So, they came, uh, we did it over a, a number of days um, and they were really quite the defining moments in the work we do. Because these women, and some of them brought their mothers um, and, you know, sitting opposite a mother who's hearing this is incredibly powerful. Um, and when each of the chiefs was absolutely magnificent as they listened and all of them had the same message that they will do whatever is in their power to never let this happen again. And it, it, I mean, what they realised that for some people in the military, for, the, for, for their most vulnerable members, it was the enemy was actually laying within the services, not, not without. Um, And it was after that point, and they were incredibly moving and and powerful um, sessions, Um, but after that point, all of the chiefs Um, really committed to this pathway of change which Defence is on. They had already started, but I think, you know, I think what had happened was the heart as well as the head was engaged at this point. And that's why we've seen this incredible acceleration of reform, uh, this incredible um, move towards a more inclusive organisation which, which, you know, we see all the time now. I mean, I was down at, um, I won't be too long, Catherine, sorry, um, HMAS Cuttable last night with the defence team that marched in Mardi Gras um, and hundreds of members that marched in Mardi Gras last night. And that was such a powerful, uh, symbolic, Thing of how far the ADF has come in, in terms of inclusiveness, mm. so.
0: No, it's, a, it's yeah. fantastic to hear. Kath, when you, can we sort of bring this down to and, and for maybe examples of how you've seen change? Because you've both had, you know, nice careers in, in, in the services. What has changed? What, what are the attitudes, the behaviours that you see now that perhaps are very different from when maybe you started out?
1: Um, well, we definitely have the, the policy changes that enable, mm. um, you know, people to have families and continue on with their careers or return to their careers. Uh, And um, so I've definitely seen that and I've definitely seen women able to um, have children continue with their careers. We have uh, flexible workplace arrangements. We have uh, we have a thing called leave without pay accompanying a serving member. It's mm. often when you're in a, you know, a, a, you're a service couple and one of you is posted overseas but the other one doesn't get an overseas posting. So they, have, they take mm. leave without pay. Nowadays, we, um, we actually look for roles that a person could, could perform remotely mm. so that they can continue with their careers as well ra- rather than either take the choice of the separation or take that leave without pay. And I've, I've a number of my friends have, have benefited from that mm. um, and, you know, have been the detachment in Ohio doing this one. Little job, calling themselves Debt Ohio, um, so things like that. We we're looking for opportunities to enable people to continue with their careers. We also do job sharing arrangements, uh, those sorts of things. Um, one change, I, I when people ask me, have you ever been? Uh, has anything been? different or have you been treated different because you're a woman, I don't feel that I have. But I do remember when I was going to Somalia, there were the 10 of us selected to go, two were female. And uh, back then we didn't have, because we hadn't deployed for quite some time, we didn't have individual readiness, um, which is what these little badges signify on each of the uniforms. Um, which basically means we've all, uh, we're all medically, dentally current, um, we're proficient in our jobs, we uh, are proficient on our weapons and we're ready to move in 28 days' notice. We didn't have that back then. So the other, so we're just basically trying to wind ourselves up and go at very short notice. And the other female in the group, um, there was some concern that she might not have been ready in time. Uh, We did have a reserve and uh, we said, well, it's okay. we'll take Steve and we were told, the hierarchy actually said, no, if one female goes, two must go. Mm. And so there was a potential that I wouldn't get to go because there wasn't another girl. Yeah. And I'm like, ah, oh, no, I think I'll be OK. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, she did, you yeah. know, uh, yeah. get ready in time. We did get to go. But nowadays, that's not a consideration whatsoever. Yeah. We're choosing who's available, who's the right person for the job. And there's only a few roles where we actually specify whether it has to be male or female, and that's because of our host country cultural Issues. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And Kath, are there any sort of examples you can give? I mean,
0: I guess I I know policies have changed, which is fantastic and which is absolutely necessary, but it's never sufficient because it's about the way people think, isn't it, and behave. So, I just wonder if there are signs that that's, you know, that in fact gender is no longer the big issue. It's the fact
2: that, you know, that that it's becoming normalised that we have more women uh, in the services. Yeah. Um, So, when I first joined... Uh, women didn't go to, really didn't go to sea. It was only, yeah. we were sort of, we were in a big uh, moment of change where we started putting women to sea. And um, since since I joined, I've seen and grown up in a Navy that's been changing and women have been going to sea and more women have, you know, the, you've seen more women at sea. I had the same situation. I navigated a patrol boat and I was at some times the only female who would go to sea and I'd have to get a waiver. They'd have to say it's okay for me to go to sea, mm. and my shipmates would actually be disgusted because mm. they said, "What are we going to do to you? You know, you're you you know, you're one of our, you're one of us." Yeah. So mm. they they actually took offence to the fact we fact we had to get a waiver for me to go. Mm. Um, at the same time, and and um, we were Alex referred to it earlier. Um, you know, gays and lesbians were not allowed to be in the defence force at that time. Mm-hmm. They now are, and I now look at my my crew. And, you know, there are 27 women. Mm. That's a, you know, that's, that's pretty normal. Um, there are women with children. So we came alongside the wharf yesterday morning. There's a young man on the wharf. He's a leading seaman. His wife is one of the leading seamen on my ship. And there was a two-year-old. Mm. And the two-year-old was delivered from the arms of dad into the arms of mum. It's a very, very different role. And it was really nice. Um, I have, you know, I have uh, a number of gay and lesbian, Um, members in my crew, I have uh, a gay man and he and his partner have a young, two young children. So you see that on the wharf. Mm. This is a different organisation. We have changed policies and the policies have now, have to be engendered into an organisation. So if you imagine cultural change always takes time. Mm. Culture takes a long time to develop and you have to make, take time to change that culture. Um, We haven't always got it right. When we first started sending people to see we hadn't always got it right. And, you know, th- they've manifested in some of the things that we've seen certainly through some of the reviews and some of the experiences that some of the people have had. And it's now our, it's now important that as we move forward we, we try to make sure that those sorts of things don't happen again. And how do we do that? Well, um, I think Charmaine referred to it. Um, Navy has now become a values-based organisation. Um, New Generation Navy has been a very big um, step for Navy. Uh, we live by values. We live by signature behaviours. People are, are expected. We uphold those. I can, you know, hold people to account mm. based on their, the way they portray their values through their behaviour. And that is, is very important. Um, and the guys who are coming through recruiting and recruit school mm. have come in with a really different attitude. And I think that if you look at the young generation, who is coming through, new generation isn't new. New generation is just Navy. And mm. they have a big problem with, but this is not new for us. This mm. is just Navy. Mm. Navy has these values. This is how we are. We accept all of these guys as our, as our shipmates. Um, so I have seen some yeah. major changes. We are a different organisation and we do need to change in order to make sure that we are relevant to make sure that we you can get, man yeah. and, put a workforce into our capability for the future. We have, you know, some very exciting things coming online Mm. and we need to be able to, to be able to field those with the right people. Just before, Charmaine, I just wanted to
0: say that one of the things as an outsider that um, I was explaining, it was explained to me in great detail about mixed messing in submarines, which caused amazing sort of ructions at the time, but is now um, accepted. And I think Australia, Alex, you might know more about this, was one of the first countries to actually have mixed messing, as in men and women, um, in the same quarters. So not segregated. And that was quite a big, big breakthrough. And apparently a lot of the objections were from the male submariners' wives or partners, so it's interesting, isn't it, these, these sort of levers that, that have to be pulled to, to change the mm. complexion of, of places because, as you can imagine, submarines are very small and, then, and compact and there's not a lot of space, so having mixed-messing was the only way that you would have um, women, uh, more than one or two women on board.
4: I'm um, sorry, Charmaine, I you wanted want, to? I just wanted to comment on that question of how things changed over time. And the major change that I have seen, outside of policy and outside of recruiting the way we do business has been in the attitudes, particularly within Army. For the last 10, 15 odd years, we've been going on continuous operations where the capability of the human that you send is far more important than whether they are male or female. And I see increasingly within the Army brigade, which is the organisation that I'm from and that I'm most familiar with, commanders don't care what core a person is, what their gender is, what their religion is, what their sexual preference is, how many children, cats or dogs they have. They care if they have the skills to do the job when it counts while you're on operations. Uh, that has been the major change I've seen in the Army Brigades. I remember when we first started going into Iraq, there were concerns about, oh, no, you couldn't possibly put a woman mm. into the, the battle groups, mm. which, was just bizarre because the women were the best qualified and by the time it came around to, to my battle group's rotation, the commander was far more interested in the capability of the human as opposed to their gender. So mm-hmm. and that's been a continuing theme throughout the brigades and I think that it's, a, it's an attitudinal change that is probably well ahead of where policy was five to
0: ten years ago but we certainly seem to be catching up. Yeah, and we were discussing before the role that women in particular can have in um, operations overseas where it's more a peacekeeping role. So, comu- you know, with the local communities and so on, and, and that's an area that yeah. in fact women um, can be, well, are obviously some, sometimes very Sometimes for some reason, and I have no idea
4: why this is, people think I'm not threatening. Uh,
5: <laughs> oh, clearly I have some work to do. <laughs>
4: but, uh, but yes, sometimes, yeah. sometimes prevent, presenting a a diverse group of individuals to the community you're trying to reach out to or or having a diverse decision-making group will lead you to some more creative solutions that you may not have come up with with just a room full of men.
3: Yeah. And I think that's the message, I think that's the message that, yeah. that we certainly tried to um, get across in our reviews. And I think that the, the military, certainly the senior leadership are taking up that actually diversity adds to the capability um, of the organisation. I mean, we know in the civilian sector that diverse organisations, the research is clear, have uh, better outputs, better, better outcomes. Um, and it's the same really in the military. Um, the, we, we, there is no longer just manual strength is required in the military. There needs to be a, a variety of skills um, and a variety of talents and a variety of experiences. And, and one of the things that when I was up in Afghanistan that's, um, that was really quite compelling, is it was the female engagement teams in our defence forces that were the ones that could talk to the Afghan women uh, because the men can't talk to the women. So that was a huge, um, you know, a huge benefit for for the military in a whole range of ways, capacity building in those communities themselves, but also intelligence gathering and and things like that. Yeah, Yeah, really important. Um, There was a report in today's paper about um, something, uh,
0: an incident that happened some years ago in Tarrant-Carlton that had been investigated. It wasn't about men um, abusing women by any means. It was army people who were getting up to some hijinks and it came to the fore and it was investigated. Anyway, the point of the story went elsewhere. But one of the people who looked at what had gone on actually made a really interesting statement about mateship and they said, when we looked at what had been happening, it it seemed to us that these men, these army um, personnel, they valued mateship above doing the right thing. In fact, above the rules. They knew that what they were doing was wrong, but mateship was more important. And I thought that was a really interesting sort of reflection on something that is, you know, a very, very core sort of part of our culture generally in Australia, but also in the Defence Forces. There's a very positive side to mateship. And Kath's described what it's like on board and, you know, the family thing. But actually mateship can also be um, a little bit difficult for some women too, can't it? Because it is very much saying, you know in many ways it's a sort of masculine thing is that do you think that's the case
1: um, <laughs> you've got me on that one i i just um I have my personal values and uh it's doing the right thing mm. um, and so for me actually i i I don't believe that I would value mateship above doing what is right yeah um so And I've not been put in a situation like that, Mm. Uh, so no, but most certainly it's doing the right thing. We have rules. I'm I'm one of those rule followers. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I joined. I wanted a disciplined organisation that, you know, had structure. Mm. Uh, So, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Mm. Mm. I
5: actually,
2: uh, I'd actually, I actually would uh, challenge that. I I agree that. the concept of mateship or shipmate mm. um, certainly makes it difficult for some people to come forward and, and say, you know, to dob on their mate. Who wants yeah. to be a dobber? You, yeah. You're taught at a young age, don't dob. Um, so that's what they feel like. Yeah. But we're trying to change that and certainly in my, the way my team are talking now is you value team above the individual. And if that team is, if that team is being disgraced in any way, by an individual's actions, then you need to actually say stop. Mm. And it's about intestinal fortitude and changing the way you think about dobbing, to put mm. it simply. Yeah. And we certainly um, are valuing that. And, and, and what we do is in, empower the member at the, at the lower level. So if you're a leading seaman or an able seaman, You're a leader within our organisation and what makes you a leader is that you show those values and if you show those values and that someone else is not living by the values which we all uphold, it's like those values of service. We talk about service. You're a member of the service, you uphold these values. If we instill that in our young people, they will actually come forward. Well, first first and foremost, we'll go up to their mate and say, hey, mate, stop, Mm. that's enough. You know, that is not appropriate in our organisation. That's what we want. We want an organization yes. that self regulates and by the same token they're actually happy to come up to their supervisor and saying, Hey, Joe's not doing the right thing. He's disgracing our team. And that's not good for our team because our team can stand proud and that's that's what we're trying to instill yes. in people. Yes. It's actually a hard thing to instill because mm-hmm. mateship is is valued so and you yeah. don't want to be, it's like a school bully. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be the one who stands up and sticks your hand up and say he's bullying mm-hmm. such and such. So yeah. it's very hard to, yeah. to do that, yeah. It is and in fact that was part of David Morrison's message, wasn't it, about
0: the bystander. The standard you walk past is the standard you yep. accept. And I think that is that is tough. It's, it's very tough and particularly when you're under stress and you're in a team and you're in somewhere like Tarrancourt in, in Afghanistan, I imagine, which would be... Very stressful, (laughs) do you think? I think it can
4: be stressful. Mm -hmm. Um, I've I've had to, on a couple of occasions, stand up to individuals and say, I disagree with your behaviour, it's against our principles, our policy, you need to stop. Mm. And on the two occasions where I've had to firstly work up the courage to go and say it to their face, I've been supported quite strongly by my team mm. and by my, my peers, my superiors. So I found the team helped me to have the courage to speak to someone who I thought was doing the wrong thing. So that, I found that teamwork quite useful. Yeah. Uh, I think when you are in a, a small group environment and you're very stressed and, and you're being rocketed on a nightly basis, then yes, li- life does get a little bit hairy. And it's not necessarily the nice, comfortable policy making situation. Mm. You know, we may find ourselves in, 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 mm. in Australia where you get to go home every night. Um, but often I think there's enough, enough knowledge and enough uh, moral courage within the organisation that someone will step forward and say, sorry, you're doing it wrong.
5: Mm.
4: You need to change your behaviour. Mm. Uh, so I think for, I think it's plausible that would happen for a short period of time. Mm. But in the the mid to long term, someone will stand up.
0: Mm. Now, I'm conscious we've got, well, we've got a a few minutes left. If anyone is interested in asking a question, um, just direct you to to the microphones. But I did want to um, ask you... What would you say to, and I'm sure you get asked by young women quite frequently, um, what's your advice to them if they are sort of interested, they've heard something at high school, a family member has said maybe you should look um, at the ADF, what's an important thing for a young woman in particular, um, but perhaps for a young man as well, about a career uh, in the ADF? What what do you think is the best thing to pass on to them? I think it's it's a matter of opportunity. You have the opportunity to
4: gain a good education whether you become an officer or a soldier, you can sign up for one, four, nine years, whatever, gain education, get a bit of an experience, have a bit of an adventure, get away from your parents, live somewhere (laughs) else in the country. (laughs) Uh, If you're a woman, it's equal pay for equal work which still baffles me that doesn't occur outside Mm. of the military Mm. Uh, and, Once you've had that experience, you then choose. You can do what I did and I studied for my MBA on weekends just before my tenure was up just so that I had another qualification, should I want to leave, but I don't. I love it. So I would say do it. It's an opportunity. If you don't like it, you can leave with a qualification, some work experience and you'll probably be in another state of Australia away from your parents having travelled a fair bit and you never know what you're going to fall into. Sounds pretty tempting,
0: actually.
2: Um, <laughs> Cap, what what's your advice? Um, I, I guess I'm passionate about what I do. So mm-hmm. um, I, I would say, you know, give it a go. If, if someone comes to me and they say, say that they want to go and do something and, and see something and learn something new, they want to travel, um, they want to uh, be around an organisation that has um, has good people in it who are all, uh, in a teamwork teamwork environment, um, then then go for it. And as Charmaine put it, put, it there, put it out there, you don't have to do this forever, it's not forever. Some people have a perception that you join the military and you're in the military forever. Um, sure, we love you to stay forever, um, but not everybody, it's not for everyone forever. Mm. Um, but it certainly is a good start. I mean, you join, you get... Uh, you get some structure around your life, you get to get away from your parents. Um, if, you, if you want to do that, you get to travel, you get to meet new people, you get some, might get some qualifications. Um, these, these are all opportunities. And then when you leave, um, generally I find that the guys that I lose are getting poached because mm. people want them out there. Yeah. Um, it's a great organisation. When you get out there and you have a good, you know, you have a good team, you know, you get to fire missiles, sweet, <laughs> sorry, and a gun, um, fly a helicopter, um, these sorts of things that, who else does that? So, mm. you know, mm. it's a bit of a, it's a bit of an adventure.
1: Yeah. So, why yeah. not?
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Fleur?
1: Yeah, I was uh, I was actually at a recruiting thing on Thursday mm. uh, with our, one of our specialist women recruitment teams. Uh, so I had the opportunity to speak to about 50 year, 11 and 12 uh, female students. Uh, one of the students asked me, uh, she, you know, took me aside afterwards and said, it might be a bit of a personal question, but do you feel that you've been affected in any way in terms of relationships or family or anything like that because of your service? Mm. And um, I... I said, you know, now I feel that it might be a good time to go back to Adelaide um, to be with my parents because they're they're ageing. I've never been posted to Adelaide but I've never asked to be posted to Adelaide. It was that whole get away from your parents, grow. And the opportunity for growth and the opportunity to try things you would never think that you would ever be capable of doing. Um, And the opportunities for the travel, everything like that far outweigh any of those, you know, those few little negative aspects. Um, I don't feel that it's affected my ability to have a relationship or anything like that. My life choices are my life choices. And, uh, yeah, definitely the opportunities it's presented and I think the person that I've become through uh, what Air Force has enabled me to do is is far outweighed any um, limitations or negatives that you could consider.
0: I guess um, the point is, I'm not sure if we've got a question. Yes. Oh, we've got two. Okay. Just to finish off uh, quickly with Alex, um we still only have what 14. per cent? 15. 15. 15.1. Oh, <laughs> don't forget the point one. So 15.1 percent women. So it's it's a pretty low. We've got we've got some way to go. But
3: yeah, you're, and I you're think an
0: optimist um, look,
3: about that. Look, I am. Yeah. I mean. We still have very few women in very senior leadership roles. Yep. And I think that's what you've got to look at um, with the statistics. You know, even if, if if it gets up to 20%, you need to look at, well, where are those women sitting? Yeah. You know, are they in those star ranks? Um, and so I think that's where the, the work's yeah. being done and it is certainly being done at the moment. I think the senior leadership team in the ADF at the minute are absolutely committed to cultural reform. Um, they're, in, they're They're driven. Um, they see it as a capability issue um, and and they're really moving forward. Um, I think the, the challenges for defense is for the messaging about that to get to those middle ranks yeah. or to certainly get to those um, those ranks that have the most in, the day-to-day influence over the more, more junior um, uh, soldiers, sailors, men and women or junior officers um, because those middle ranks are almost the keepers of the culture and what they say and do matters. Mm. So it's fabulous that it is certainly changes being driven from the top, but it needs to also be really embedded into the organisation. Mm, Very much so.
0: All right. um, I have a question here.
6: Hi, yeah, I'm currently studying a postgraduate diploma in journalism and undergrad, I majored in communication and having that difficult sort of opportunity and time to consider what sort of career I'll go into. Um, My uncle served a long time as a naval psychiatrist and implanted an idea in my mind of potentially considering um, a job in the AFDA in a communication specialist role. Um, But in considering that, I've had conversations with my parents about my personality, and so it's been interesting hearing some of your um, perceptions on the type of person being more important than the gender. Um, But, I mean, a lot of what can be attractive in the AFDA is something that might be difficult for some women like myself to handle when you have these perceptions or these thoughts of ourselves as being fright bats or being um, a little bit sort of anxious or having problems with leadership and the difference between ambition and being bossy. And I just wanted to ask you how you have been able to prepare yourself for that role and what advice you have to women who would be considering these roles um, in basically so it's Being able to fight those perceptions, yeah, and stereotypes. fit, the sort of fit. There, yeah, you know? fit. yeah, yeah, that's yeah.
4: good. Any comments I suppose I am a highly competitive individual and have been forever. So, I find that I, I do get quite nervous, I, I do get quite anxious, but I've realised over time that I'm the only person who knows that. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> else knows, just me.
0: You told a few people. Oh, yeah, that. and I told
4: them. Apart from that, don't don't (laughs) tell anyone. Uh, So, I find that even though I am nervous and anxious, I can still portray a great deal of confidence. Um, One of the interesting things about working in the military is that you're in a very structured environment. Mm -hmm. So, you as a stranger approaching me, if providing you can read what my uniform tells you, will look at me and go, "Okay, you're an army major, right, you fit into this nice little box and until I have you figured out as a human, I have a stereotype with which to treat you. So I suppose for me there are, it's it's a little bit protectionist being in this nice little box because people will treat me with a a level of respect and, and expect certain things of me. So that makes it a lot easier as well, so they're not, as I look at women in the APS in, uh, in Canberra, where I work at the moment, and I look at them and they're, they're not wearing a uniform, they're not wearing any insignia, I don't know who they are, I don't know what they do, I don't know how I'm supposed to relate to them. All of that uncertainty is gone. So in some ways, this makes it easier. Um, I would encourage you to just get out there and have a go. Uh, if there's one thing I learnt from Duntroon, uh, it was hard. There were things that I struggled with because I'm Charmaine. There were things that the guy next to me struggled with because he was Dave. Uh, Not necessarily related to gender, but Mm. if there's one thing I got out of Duntroon. It's that I can achieve anything. Mm. I just have to believe in myself. So no one else
0: can see how insecure you are. Just get on with it. Mm. Thank you. There are also some great options now, aren't there, for women to go in and and try, young women, um, to to try sort of the the trial program and and a couple of other options, you know, to sign up forever, which I think was one of the other concerns that that you've heard coming through. Okay, do we have another question?
3: Hi. Um, Yeah, Alex spoke about women coming forward secretly to her and um, talking about um, different, difficulties probably like sexual harassment or abuse or anything like that. I was wondering because you women um, lead or and in charge of other women, have uh, women actually come forward to you and been able to speak to you? In all the, all the other women, not Alex. <laughs> um, I was wondering if they have come, been able to come up and report sexual harassment or abuse or concerns like that to you.
1: Yeah. Um, I currently work at the Sexual Misconduct Prevention Response Office, which was stood up in in response to the Broderick Review. It was a, rec- a direct recommendation of the review. Um, so we actually have a uh, a team of mental health professionals and social workers that um, will take. We ha- we have the 1800 Sempro number. People can ring up and uh, seek support, guidance, uh, whatever they need in terms of uh, sexual uh, harassment, sexual misconduct, sexual offences. Um, and uh, we, you know, we have received calls, of course, as you would imagine on that number, some that are historic offences and some that are more recent offences. Uh, so that there is um, a mechanism available for people to report and, and receive support and that can be in a restricted uh, forum as well where it's not reported or investigated if the member so chooses. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it, I have had uh, some um, women who have worked not for me, but near me, uh, have, have come and, ha- and spoken to me about um, some situations and we've referred them accordingly uh, to, be, um, to be provided support and for the offence to be investigated as, as required.
2: Mm.
1: And that's quite a new um, yep. thing,
2: yeah. Anyone else? Um, I've, um, in my time, um, and it's not, it's actually before the Broderick Review, yeah. I've had situations where people have come to me um, with, with instances where they've actually felt uncomfortable in the workplace from you know anything from very basic like uh, you know such and such as picking on me um, all the way through to something a lot more serious and we've always had policy to deal with that our policy ro- policies are a lot more robust now they're very you know very robust and we have um, we have advisors within our command team so I'll have someone who may report an incident that will go to that actual that actual um, unacceptable behaviour will be reported through the chain, and then we will deal with that. And now with, if it's at the extreme end, we may use, utilise Sempro, we may utilise, may utilise the police, we may utilise a whole raft of things. If it's as simple as, you know, um, Sailor A not getting along with Sailor B, and I don't like the way they talk to me, we may actually resolve that at the very basic level. So there's actually a, a structured way to deal with multiple instant incidents. So I have had those situations. Yeah, thank you. And I think we've got time just for one last quick
0: question.
5: Hello, uh, in my former role as a defence member, I can echo the positive sentiment that uh, I had as a, uh, a female in the in the army. Uh, however, s- since uh, leaving the army, my new role has uh, with the military has been uh, as a defence spouse, and I've found this much more difficult than any uh, any time I actually had in the military. Uh, it it you know, I have a professional career and it's the three-year posting cycle and the constant moving and unsure uh, sort of situation uh, places my family in a very difficult situation. So I guess I'm kind of asking Alex uh, a little bit w- with the policy side of things. Defence families are mostly uh, women, to be fair, because, yeah. And so this is going to affect their careers and, and what sort of things can defence do to help uh, help families and, and um, yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay. Um, I've certainly seen
3: over the few years I've been with Defence that families can um, have longer postings.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Air Force now have a recruit to area. Yeah, we have a recruit to area scheme. We also try for back-to-back postings, so a minimum of six years in a location.
3: Yeah, Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, that was having an impact on on families, and I mean, and gone are the spouse, the so-called, I hate the term, but army wife, that would just follow her husband from Mm -hmm. posting to posting. You know, women have careers in the civilian world as well. We've also had a lot of um, members who've come to us who may have a child that has a disability, and so moving every um, three years um, to get, uh, you know, and trying to find support in each posting has been really difficult, but the services as I've seen, are actually quite more. They're more attuned to that now. The career managers um, uh, who work with uh, members on their posting are more attuned to that now. I still don't think it's perfect. Mm. I still think it is absolutely so difficult. I've met a lot of people that are. Is it married, separated? Is that what you call? You know, I've you know people that might be in in Victoria and um, and their spouses up in yeah. Darwin, and that's three years. It's very very difficult mm. and. I'll take my hat off to you. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you.
0: Um, I've, we're, we've actually run out of time. Um, I, I did want to thank all of you for your generosity and for sharing so much of, of your experience with us this afternoon. It's very much appreciated. Could you please thank um, Fleur, Kat, Alex and Charmaine?